as a Florida representative, what do you say to people who really connect with that Bugs Bunny meme of just like sawing Florida off from the rest of the country and letting it float away? Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. We know that the majority of the youth in America are not on board for this new extremist Republican agenda. They believe in reproductive rights and that the climate is in crisis. They're against book banning and propaganda education. They're majority pro-LGBTQ, pro-union, pro-healthcare, pro-living wage, and pro-common sense gun legislation. And the Republican Party offers them none of that. Gen Z might technically still be getting their feet wet in politics with the oldest member of that generation turning 26 this year, but they know who they are and what they want, and they turned out in historic numbers for the midterm last year. But they're also looking around at everything from our legislation to our politicians, and they don't see themselves properly reflected. And that hurts with turnout and engagement, which is why our guest today is so important. Maxwell Alejandro Frost is the first member of Gen Z to be elected to Congress. And not only is he a congressman, he's a Florida congressman. So as he looks to and represents the future of our government and our country, he comes from a state that is currently working overtime to take us back to the past. Congressman Frost is the child of a Cuban-American who came to the U.S. during the freedom fights of the late 1960s to go on to become a special needs teacher and a full-time musician. A musician himself, Maxwell became a community activist and organizer after surviving a shooting in downtown Orlando. The experience solidified his commitment for common sense solutions to gun violence and led him to a leadership role at the ACLU and then as the national organizing director for March for Our Lives. In Congress, Frost has been appointed to the Committee on Oversight and Accountability and the Committee on Science, Space and Technology. We clearly need way more young people like him in government, not only because they understand the real life of the constituents they serve, but they understand the future we're going into better than many of the people who are already there. So without further ado, please welcome my guest, community organizer and musician, and now sitting congressman for Florida's 10th district, Maxwell Frost. Welcome, Maxwell. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining me. I was saying in the introduction that Gen Z might technically be still new to politics, but they know exactly (laughs) who they are and what they care about, right? Would you like to explain to older people the priorities of your generation? Like if you were going to talk to them about it, what would you tell them? Yeah, well, you know, I I always like to give the little caveat. I don't, you know, I don't represent the whole generation and obviously like any other generation. You don't? You're not the sole speaker (laughs) for an entire generation? Exactly. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised (laughs) on people who think that. Um, So I always like to give the little disclaimer. But I mean, I will say what the numbers show us is that this is the most progressive generation in the history of our country. What does that mean? Well, this is a generation that I think quickly has developed a political identity, maybe a little faster than other generations because of things like the internet and social media being a fact of life. I mean, literally what separates Gen Z from other generations and and the biggest kind of characteristic they say is the fact that we've been involved um, and enthralled in uh, uh, our phones since birth really is, is the distinguishing factor there. And I think it comes with, you know, benefits and it comes with some cons, too. And I think some of the benefits is that we have a generation that's very aware of a lot of the hardship going around across the country and around the world. And so because we've been exposed to that so early, I mean, I'll go, I do a lot of uh, roundtables at like elementary schools and middle schools and high schools, and there will be 10-year-olds who come up to me 
I actually, let me tell you, I was just, it was about two months ago, I was on the Capitol steps saying hi to an elementary school from my district that was visiting DC. And one of the questions I usually like to ask during these things is, you know, if you got to pass a bill, what bill would you do? And, you know, usually you get like, you know, no homework or stuff like that, right, is what a lot of older members told me what you would get. I haven't really gotten any of that. I will have 10, 9, 8-year-olds open their mouth and say, ban assault weapons because I don't want to be shot in school. You know, I'll have young people say something with climate change because the storms are getting worse. You know, it, it inspires me and also depresses me at the same time, right? Because our our, <laughs> yeah, me too. our kids at 10 and 12 years old should be saying no homework law, right? And not having to worry about being gunned down in their own school. But the fact of the matter is the leading cause of death for them is to be shot. And so they're thinking about, you know, what's going on in our country. And so it's hard, but I think all of that together creates a generation that, you know, sees these solutions, wants to quickly move towards the solutions so we can just have a better life for ourselves and for our children and for, you know, for the rest of this country. Yeah. And as you said, it's not even just a generational thing. You know, you're Gen Z, I'm Gen X, right? But my priorities are exactly the same as yours because I'm raising a Gen Z and I don't want him to live in this world either. Like reproductive rights, climate, the state of the earth, not wanting to die from senseless violence, right? Like I feel like that is not just a your generation thing. It's an anyone who is aware thing, but your generation has been aware of it for so long, almost like you said, your whole life. There's no time in Gen Z's life that there weren't smartphones and these kind of things. You get most of your news from a handheld device or from the internet, right? So it's clearly a different world. And I think you guys have embraced it a lot quicker than say we did. But also I think of this, you guys are very much into being who you want to be and loving who you want to love. I think your generation is also very smartly rebelling against this idea of just being cogs in a capitalistic machine, like your parents' generation, right? You want to be able to afford housing like your grandparents were able to afford, which is probably why nine out of 10 of young people around the country are pro-union, pro-universal yep. healthcare, pro-living wage, right? Yep. The world, but particularly this country, is clearly broken. And I think you guys are the first generation to just come out and say, we see that. Like, something's got to give. And you guys don't seem super cool with keeping the status quo anymore. Exactly. And and I'll say, you know, something that, you know, because I'm also a student of movement history. And, you know, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the amazing movements, organizers, advocates that came before us. But there, another distinguishing factor of Gen Z, too, is... Usually when other generations at our at our age, right, as young people um, got involved in politics and did a huge political movement, most of the time that that generation as a in their youth was defined by a very specific issue. Right. The war in Vietnam. We can even, you know, go back not so far back. We have things like uh, wealth inequality, Occupy Wall Street. The right to an abortion, birth control, civil rights. Exactly. And the interesting thing about Gen Z is that just in a short amount of years, right, in a few years, the generation has really latched onto many issues that kind of span the spectrum. And I think part of it is that because we're so, you know, we're so connected online, we also see the connection of all the issues. I really think the age of the single issue voter is quickly dying, right? And part of the reason is because Young people aren't going into the booth thinking about one issue. They're thinking about all the issues, right? And and they want a candidate who really has a message that calls to all the issues. And that's something I try to do. 
when I'm speaking with constituents, I always talk about the fact that because the oppression is connected, the organizing must also be. Because every issue uh, works with each other to create the conditions we're in, when we talk about the solutions, the solutions have to also be holistic. There's not one bill that'll solve everything. And so, and it's important to say that and recognize that because I think, you know, when we lie to ourselves about the state of play, we set ourselves up for failure. It's part of the reason why, you know, and this is no flack to anyone who, who said this or anything, I get it. But like, you know, even after Donald Trump was elected, the not my president thing, which I get, um, I didn't take part in it because he, what, he, he was our president. And, and I think it was important to say that. You'll, you'll notice, too, I say a lot of things about Governor DeSantis, right? I always say Governor DeSantis, and I make sure to do it because he is my governor of this state. And we lost, and he won. And I say it, even though it hurts me to say it, because I cannot lie to myself about the state of play. If we don't know what the battlefield is and who the players are, how can we expect to organize to defeat it? I'm not going to lie to myself and say things are better than they are, worse than they are. I want to know exactly what the reality is. And I think that's another exciting thing about this younger generation is we, you know, we want to, we're straight shooters, right? We just want to know how it is and how we can be a part of the fight to make it better. Oh, I always say with the not my president thing, I'd say he's my president, but these aren't my values, you know? And yeah, I mean, your your own campaign ad recently says if we want bold change on guns, on reproductive health, on affordable housing, we can't keep electing the same politicians. And that's the thing. We have to play within the system we've been given. And if we want to live in yeah. a rule of law and we want to live in a country that has a democracy then we have to play within the democracy. And as you said, Ron DeSantis is currently your governor. That doesn't mean that we can't play within our democracy to remove him from that job. And I think exactly. someone like exactly. you is the perfect example of that, right? Like you started your work with groups focused on common sense gun legislation because that was something you were yep. passionate about. And now you're a lawmaker who can work on common yep. sense gun legislation. You were recently on The Last Word on MSNBC and you said, we need newly elected officials who actually give a damn about our lives. And that's the kind of sentiment I feel like we need right now. Someone who believes change can happen. And you've been out here saying, if we put in the work, you're confident that we can turn around, say, this country's horrifying gun violence in your lifetime. And I love that because I believe that, too. And that's clearly the kind of things people want to hear. They want to know our politicians believe change can actually happen. Exactly. And I know when we talk to young people, when I talk to young people, they really seem to get it and they believe that, too. But like, how do you think we translate that to the polls, you know? How do we yeah. educate the youth of America because they clearly a huge amount of power there without boring them? How do we tell them about the issues without having them zone out? How do we make sure they're not tricked by third party spoilers like RFK or no labels who can make them a million promises, but if you don't understand the system, you don't understand that they won't or can't follow through on those. What do you think we should do about that? It's interesting because it's really, uh, it's, it's an act, it's a balancing act, right? Um, I, I'm one that believes, and I'm, I'm going to try not to go down this rabbit hole. I go down it a lot, but growing up in the movement space and as a progressive, right, even in, in my own movement, I was sold this fake binary choice that existed, right? You're either an incrementalist centrist, moderate, that's like one side of it, looking at it in a derogatory way. And then the other side of it is you're either a progressive who wants the world and it's never going to happen, right? Like those are the two sides. It feels like it gets painted for us. And then you look into movement history and you realize that's such a load of BS to, 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 to put it as 
two things working against each other. In fact, incrementalism and in, in the and taking steps towards a greater goal is the only way that big change has ever been done in this country. Now, I, there might be some progressives listening, but Max, what are you talking about? You know, like we're fighting for big, big things. And I always say, yes, we are. And the difference here is it's a problem when people want to talk about incrementalism and taking steps at the expense of talking about a bold vision for the country, right? And, and the way I like to explain it is you wouldn't start walking on a journey without understanding what the destination is. You'll have nowhere to go. You'll be kind of, you know, getting lost. And I feel like for a lot of politicians in this country, because folks are scared or don't think we're ready for the big, bold, transformational change that we need, they don't even want to talk about it. And that's a, and that brings us back to young voters. Young voters want to talk about it. And I don't think we cut young voters enough credit. You know, we, we like to say, well, you know, it's not going to happen next year, so we shouldn't say it. Well, then just say that, right? I, I'm very transparent when I talk about my plan. I believe in Medicare for all. I believe everybody in this country should have health care by virtue of being alive. I think you deserve to be healthy. That is what I believe. The next sentence will be that we won't pass to this Congress with Kevin McCarthy as the Speaker of the House. But guess what? We have over 100 co-sponsors in the House of Representatives to say a Medicare for all program is what we need. That gives me so much hope. And so we're getting there. We need to elect better people. We need to keep the pressure on and we will have Medicare for all. But here's the thing. We won't wake up tomorrow having the people in place to make it happen. But hey, maybe we can wake up in four years, five years and have the people in place to make it happen. But the way that we create the environment where we wake up and we say today's the day is by those steps. And so it, it's a little bit I take a little bit from both. Right. It's like I'm not going to give up on talking and fighting for the bold change we need. I'm also going to talk about the steps we need to get there. I don't see these things as adversarial towards each other. I see them as the same thing. And that's how all progressive movements have worked in this country. You, you work to get the people and resources in place. And one day you wake up and it seems like it happened quickly, but really it didn't. And, and I think when you explain that to young voters, yeah. They get it, right? They get it. But you yeah. have to be honest with them because ultimately you're saying it's about electing better people, but you can't elect better people overnight. But I think it also comes back to making a better argument. You know, like people always say, oh, well, what about business? And you're like, there's a huge argument for Medicare for all, for example, in business environments, right? Like if I was a small business owner and I didn't have to pay for the health care of my workers because it came through the government, guess what? My profits are better. I, that's something I don't have to worry about. People would not be trapped exactly. in bad jobs, bad marriages, that kind of thing, because that's where their health care comes from. It's a freedom, yeah, it's freedom. argument. It's yeah. a business argument. And we haven't made the argument to make the change, but we can because in the past, when we talk about Medicare for all people are like, oh, we're just giving away free stuff as someone who grew up in Canada. No, you're not. You're taking care of your population and a healthy population is better for the whole country's bottom line. Exactly. We just need to make better arguments and we need politicians elected yes. who are willing to make that that argument. Now, let's talk about your actual job. You're a member of Congress, but you, from the perspective of the youngest one there, what are you noticing? You know, as a fresh pair of eyes on yeah. a rather stagnant old system, let's be honest, what needs to be updated or changed if we want to make those changes, if we want to elect better people, if yeah. we want to get the big things done? I mean, I think the changes are we need to elect a Democratic majority. But, you know, the, this, you know what I've This I've is an really important been, part. Yeah, that's an important one. But I've really been surprised by, you know, the, the question I get asked is like, 
what surprised you about going to Congress? The political environment didn't surprise me. We, we, I mean, we all know about it. <laughs> we all know how bad the political environment is. So that wasn't surprising to me. What was surprising is the operation of Congress and the way that it works despite who's in power. And, and it's not a place that rewards like bipartisanship. It's not a place that rewards like anything like that. Um, and I'll give you an example. You, so you get elected to Congress, right? It's that Tuesday night, you're winning, you're getting lit with your volunteers and your friends, you're taking some shots, you're you know, getting calls from members of Congress from across the country. And then the next morning you wake up and you get a letter and it's from the U.S. House of Representatives. And to paraphrase it, it says, your ass has to be here on Sunday for orientation. So then you go to D.C. for orientation and you get there, you're excited, bright eyed, bushy tailed. You come in the first morning, 8 a.m., whatever. And the way it works is you have two weeks of orientation. It's kind of like school. You have a week, you have Thanksgiving break, and then you have the other week. The first part of the day is like 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. to noon. That is the only part of your day-to-day where you're going to be in a bipartisan setting. And guess what? It's not a collaborative segment. That 8 to 12 p.m. segment is actually the class segment where you're listening. You're getting like lectures and you're learning. Um, So you're not really talking with one another. After that, you have a lot of social and political events for the rest of that orientation where you're all separated by the party you're in. And the interesting thing is I feel like the best time to make good relationships with people who you disagree with on a lot of issues is an orientation because we haven't started coming at each other really yet, right? We're all just learning how to do this thing. And I feel like it's a big missed opportunity. You really have to go out of your way to create those relationships. The other thing is just, you know, Congress, a lot of the way it's set up is for political a political show. I'll give you another example. I was just on a congressional delegation trip in South America. And in Brazil, we went to their House of Representatives, like their capital. And we did a meeting in one of their committee rooms. You go into the room. It's a bunch of desks. Every desk, like every seat has a mic in the room. And it looks like a good like uh, layout for collaboration. Then you walk into a committee room in the United States House of Representatives. And if, if, if people listening haven't seen it, I'll kind of bring the picture for you. But Google committee room. Um, Google the oversight committee room where I sit, right? And the way it works is you have these uh, a dais, right, where members of Congress sit, and you're kind of elevated. And then you have the witness table, and then you have a sea of seats and cameras, and you even have lights pointing at us. And you know what it looks like? It looks like a production. It looks like a show. Why? Because it is a show. The point of congressional hearings are to help inform us on the legislation we write. It's supposed to be a very collaborative process. And it's really turned into a political show. We don't face, like members of Congress are not facing each other, right? I think this is something the Senate, a lot of the Senate rooms are better because in the Senate, the rooms are a lot smaller and you kind of sit in a horseshoe shape. You face each other, you can talk. Not in in the House of Representatives. So there's like little things like that that I've noticed where it's like, wow, this is really rewarding showmanship and not rewarding collaboration. And I think that's something that could help fix a lot of the problems going on, at least when you think about people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, where I'm sitting in an oversight hearing and I look over to my left and she's speaking. and She has a big blow up picture of Hunter Biden naked. You know, it's just like crazy. So either way, the operation rewards the craziness, believe it or not. Yeah, I do believe it. But I also think it's really good that the administration right now and what you guys are doing 
The fact that you were in South America to do that seems to me like you're looking outside the box, which is what we talk about on this show all the time. This idea that like America is not all perfect and all good and we can't learn anything from any other countries. We are not the only democracy in the world. In fact, we're not even in the top 10 of real democracies, right? On the democracy index. And you're down there saying, hey, this is actually a better way to set up the room for collaboration. You know, there used to be way more collaboration pre-Newt Gingrich in the house. Like there was way more collaboration. And then he came in and said, this is your enemy. This is your enemy. Don't talk to them. If you talk to people who were before those days, they say, oh, we used to get in a room with Republican, you know, and Democrats and we'd have pizza and we'd all discuss an issue. They don't do that anymore because it's become a show in which I show you how much I am fighting the other person. And that doesn't serve the American people on any level. And I think it's essential that we put more people like you with an open mind and are looking at it with different eyes in there to say, we could probably do this better. We could probably do this more efficiently and we could serve the American people better. Now let's talk about your home state since it's at the top of the list for shoving the entire country into a time machine back to the 1950s. If not, if Ron had his way, the 1850s. Yep. But as a Florida representative, what do you say to people who really connect with that Bugs Bunny meme of just like sawing Florida off from the rest of the country and letting it float away. Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele podcast. Each week I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions have honest conversations, just keeping it real and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on. Because you know I love it when you do. Today's pod is brought to you by Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and lowers your bills all in one place. When you log into Rocket Money, they ask what you'd like help with. I chose cancel subscriptions, but you can choose get help lowering your bills, track spending, create a budget. It can track your net worth, grow your savings, improve your credit score, or reduce your debt. Rocket Money helps you monitor all your expenses in one place, recommends custom budgets based on past spending, and will even send you notifications when you've reached your spending limit. I wanted to use it to help me cancel subscriptions that I'd forgotten about. And apparently I'm not alone in that problem. Most people think they're spending about $80 a month on their subscriptions, when in reality, the number is closer to $200. When you've signed up for so many things like streaming services or free trials, it's easy to lose track of what you're paying for. So if you don't know exactly how much you're spending on subscriptions every month, you need Rocket Money. Stop throwing your money away. Cancel unwanted subscriptions and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash politicsgirl. That's rocketmoney dot com slash politics girl rocket dot com slash politics girl do you know that your temperature at night can have one of the greatest impacts on your sleep quality if you wake up too hot or too cold then you might want to check out miracle made bed sheets i talk about miracle made sheets all the time because they're terrific inspired by nasa miracle made uses silver infused fabrics to make temperature regulating bedding so you can sleep at the perfect temperature all night long 
Their sheets are thermoregulating. So even two people who run at completely different temperatures can use the same sheets and get equally great results. Miracle sheets are also incredibly nice, but without the high price of other luxurious sheets. So don't put up with being uncomfortable. Get a better night's sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl to try them for yourself. If you order today, you will save over 40%. And if you use our promo code politicsgirl at checkout, you will also get three free towels and save an extra 20%. Miracle is so confident in their product that they've backed it with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, they're going to give you a full refund. So upgrade your sleep today with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl and use the code politicsgirl to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl. Thank you, Miracle Made, for continuing to sponsor the Politics Girl podcast. Yeah, yeah. Well, I always like I always tell people number one, you know, not too long this entire century thus far, the past twenty-three years, with the exception of twenty eighteen, Florida statewide races were won by less than a point, maybe a point. And what that means is we are a state that has a lot of Democrats and progressives in it who really care about the issues we all care about in this state. And it's always been at the margins. And the mistake that was made is Somewhere in 2018, when Andrew Gillum lost by, uh, I think, 30,000 votes, which is nothing in a state like Florida, somewhere in that whole thing, there were the powers that be said, well, I guess we shouldn't invest in Florida anymore. I come from the opposite opinion. I think when you get so close, you got to rev it up. But people, you know, hit the brakes. And guess what? The Republican Party flew right past us because they hit the gas. And Ron DeSantis won by 18, 19 points. It doesn't mean that we need to give up on Florida, that we need to cut Florida off. It means we need to continue to invest in this state. This is something my friend Greg Kassad says, and Greg's a freshman congressman from Austin, Texas. He says, Texas is not a red state. It's an underorganized state. And I would say the same thing about Florida. And look, I'm not going to BS anybody. It's going to be hard. It's not going to be... I mean, I hope it's in one cycle, but it might not be in one cycle. It might be multiple. But that's the problem with Democrats is for us, our strategy is really connected to these two-year goals. And, some, you know, we should take a page at Republicans on this because they do have short-term goals, but they have very long-term goals, like 20, 30-year goals um, on taking the Supreme Court and waking up one morning and seeing that abortion Roe versus Wade has been struck down, waking up one morning and seeing that the Republicans control most of the state legislatures across this country through meticulous gerrymandering, like all these horrible things that are happening. It's not a surprise to me and it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. They've been working at it for a long time. They waited and now they're seeing the fruits of it. Now, the good news for us is that the electorate is not on their side. And Florida is really a great case study in the difference between politics and policy. What does that mean? It's simple. We are a state that in the past six years, 60% of Florida voters went to the ballot box and said, yes, $15 minimum wage. Yes, medical marijuana. Yes, uh, voting rights to people with previous felonies. In fact, right now, we are collecting petitions for Floridians Protecting Freedom, which is the ballot initiative to codify abortion rights in the state of Florida, which, by the way, is the single greatest opportunity 
to uh, advance abortion access that we have next year in the entire country because we're the third largest state in the union. But we are we are on well on our way to collecting the petitions needed. And guess what? Polling shows upwards of 70 percent of Floridians say hell yes to voting yes on that. Same thing with adult use marijuana, which is probably going to be on the ballot, too. Most Floridians say we'd vote yes on that, too. So it like brings the question if. 70% of Floridians are saying yes to these bold progressive measures. Why do they vote for Ron DeSantis? And the answer is very simple. It's that difference between policy and politics. And we see it across the country. The Republican Party does a great job when they're able to make a disconnect between the values that the people hold and what they actually want. Healthcare, climate, fighting the climate crisis, good jobs, etc. Their rights and politicians who can really go for the emotions and, you know, get away from the policy. And that's part of the reason why when you see Ron DeSantis speaking at a press conference in Florida and it's on the news and everything, he's not talking about, I'm going to ban abortion for all of you, right? right? Like he signed that bill at like 3 a.m. in the middle of the dark with no pomp and circumstance. He is talking about culture wars, woke, CRT, mass mandates, things that are all about politics and not about policy. And he does well when those when that's you know the waters and the lines are blurred, and so um, we have to do a better job at connecting those two things. So don't give up on Florida. We have a lot of work to do, but this is a progressive state. Just look at the ballot initiatives, and I'm I'm not trying to sell you on a story that is 20 years old. I'm telling you about stuff that just happened a few years ago. I always say that Florida isn't red; it's blue suppressed. I mean, what you did was you had one election where Ron got elected by, like you said, 30,000 votes. And then he literally changed the way the state elects people. He disenfranchised people. He changed, he gerrymandered the state. He changed who could vote. He, you know, took away people's rights to vote. It is unbelievable. And then, like you said, he sits on the culture war issues that keep people divided, right? Like Florida is up there being just as extreme as it can be with the don't say gay laws and the anti-trans legislation and the book bans and the turning people away from hospitals for their sexual orientation. It. It's changes in education, right? Most recently, slavery yep. was kind of not so bad because people learn skills BS, right? There are literal Nazis walking in your streets right now, organizing, marching, protesting. But then the governor himself, when he actually does things, he's refusing to meet with the president for federal aid for hurricane relief, which the people need. He's vetoing federal aid for energy savings for Florida residents, right? People can't get home insurance. People can't get a well-rounded education. You can pull people over and ask them for their papers. I mean, people from certain states can't drive on your roads anymore. That's bananas, right? So I think you have to counter that kind of behavior. And how do you think we should do that? Like, as a Florida representative, where what's your take on where woke goes to die, right? Or even the whole concept of woke in general, because what's the pushback? What do you think our pushback should be on that? Because they use it for everything now. We're not going to fill these military positions in the military because the military has gone too woke, right? This isn't just a Florida problem. Do you have a pushback on woke that you think people should be putting out there? So, yeah, I mean, it, mine's pretty simple. Um, I just don't talk about it. Um, I dismiss <laughs> it. I, you know, if, if a reporter comes up to me and asks me what I think about woke, I will say I woke up this morning. I have no idea what they're talking about. And you know what? Most of this country is on board with that. Most people in this country, if you look at the polling, they either don't know what woke means or they're tired of hearing about it. So because most people live in that camp, I think it's politically smart for me to also live in that camp. 
who knows what it means? Who cares? Um, healthcare, please, right? And and I think like that is the way to go. And you know, I found sitting on oversight that ridicule and humor a lot of times is the best antidote for a lot of these wild fantasies and bogus claims that the right wing makes. Even a Repu the Republican Party itself in polling is showing that they're getting tired of the whole woke conversation. So I don't want to give it, I, don't, I try not to give it any life. You know, I really go right, blow right past it and say, I don't, I'm not really sure what he means by that. But, you know, what I do know is that we have a homeowner's insurance problem in this, in this state. Um, and I would rather the governor focus on that than talking about woke, whatever that is. And we've received a lot of, you know, good feedback on that messaging here in Florida because people are, are having a hard time. And again, they want policy. They want to talk about the policy, not the politics. I think, you know, sitting in a meeting, um, it was about a few months ago. And there's a colleague of mine who had brought up that, you know, like we don't we shouldn't talk to our constituents about policy. You know, it's a lot of mambo jumbo people want to, like, understand what's going like, how are you going to help them? How are you going to help them? And I get the, the spirit of that argument because I was in that camp too. But it's our job to really connect the policy to the day-to-day -day life, right? Like that is our job. And so for me, it's like, not no, we shouldn't run away from the policy. We should work at communicating it in a better way. And I think that is how we fill the gap. Because when I knock doors, people want to hear what the hell I'm doing, right? Like they want to know what policy I'm fighting for to help them with their everyday life. And so my job should be to connect those dots. And I feel like when we spend time on these, you know, crazy things Republicans are talking about, it, we're, we're not connecting the dots. And again, remember like policy versus politics, like we got to be in the business of connecting the policy to our people. And I feel like every second we're talking about some other stuff, we're just, uh, we're not winning. And so that, that's my personal thing, though. That's what I believe. Um, I don't know if it's the way to do it, but I think, yeah. I think that makes perfect sense. I mean, I think that the voters of your state should know at the door that your Florida legislators voted to apply for Florida's allocation of the energy savings rebate from the federal government. And then DeSantis came along and <clears throat> vetoed it, saying it was too woke. His own Republican legislators yeah. were too woke, right? So then the Floridians, yeah. the people you're actually talking to at the door, aren't going to get any federal relief on their energy bills because their governor turned it down. I would want to know that. That's yeah. policy, but I would want to know that. I would want to know that Ron also turned down $350 million in climate funding before your most recent yeah. hurricane when Florida is, as you've put it, a frontline state in the climate crisis, right? So uh, these are things that I think... The people at the yep. door want to know, even if they are policy. And to be clear, no matter what Republican candidates say on the debate stage, there is a climate crisis, right? So you need to be talking yeah. about that to people at the door. And you need to be talking about policy that might help that. And I they're mean, feeling it. They should be feeling it. It's everywhere, right? Your 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 ocean yeah. is this like a bathtub. Naples is recording the highest temperatures ever. Like you guys are ground zero for climate initiatives exactly no exactly or it should be anyway thing, it should you know, be something that's bringing you guys together to work against it exactly you know i just did an interview yesterday where someone was talking about this and we've seen a drastic shift in the climate movement you know for a long time the climate movement was it's coming it's coming it's coming and it was and and it's sometimes it's hard to get get a broader consensus and movement around that because you know people want to graph things now and now we're at the point where we're, you know, we're not saying it's coming, it's here, right? It is here. And I don't have to convince 
people in my district that's here because we have more hurricanes than ever that are lasting longer, that are creating more destruction. It's directly connected to the rising temperatures in the ocean. That is directly connected to the climate crisis. And when we have this good conversation, like I don't need to convince people that climate change is real. All I need, I, what I need to do is work to mobilize people so we can actually make a difference here. I had a conversation with Senator Ed Markey a few, like about a month ago, and he was saying that there are conservative like business owners who really, you know, didn't talk to him much, who are now reaching out saying, what can I do about climate? Because it's impacting my bottom line. And, you know, so now we're seeing more business owners and people come to the table because now the money's starting to get impacted by this. And look, I don't care how, you know, why you came to the fight, welcome nonetheless. And so whether it's your bottom line or I'm on the human live side and humanity, but you know, whether it's the bottom line or whatever, Welcome to the fight. And unfortunately, what we're going to see, more and more people coming to this climate fight. This is only going to grow. And unfortunately, it's only going to grow because it's only going to create more destruction. But here's the good news. The worst impacts of the climate crisis, we can still prevent. But we, we got to get to it. The cost of not doing anything is far greater than the cost of taking bold action. And I think the president's been doing some great work on this. We'll continue to push for even more. And I think we're going in a good direction. I do too. I always say like, start thinking about if you don't like immigration, if your whole thing is the border, there's going to be so much immigration, so much mass migration of people because of climate change. Like that's going to change the whole yeah. world. If India becomes too hot to be hospitable to human life, they're going to move up into yeah. Europe, right? So you are better now yeah. to treat the climate as a whole, to keep everyone where they belong. Exactly. Otherwise, you're going to have yet another crisis. It's going to cost us so much more in human life, exactly. in money, in everything everything to not deal with the problem now. So pretending it doesn't exist is not really an option, but it also exactly. should be, again, an opportunity to get away from the culture wars and bring people together to change something for the better for all of us, whether you're at the table for your bottom line, for immigration, or for the planet's health. Yep, 100%. But that takes me back to what you were saying earlier about uh, your party in the state and how they kind of got steamrolled in the last election. Like, your party... The Democratic Party is the one that's trying to deal with these climate issues, right? And you, I think you've been rightly critical of them in your state for kind of trying to turn it on right before every single election, right? This uh, Florida, like a lot of other states, does this thing where uh, you don't have organizing going on year round. You kind of roll in before an election and then you can't believe you can't get the momentum going. But I think you've been really clear that we can't keep doing that. We kind of have to keep it going all the time. So with that in mind, I feel like you've been taking a different approach than most elected members of Congress. Can you talk to me a little bit about keeping your campaign organizing director on board for what you call Democracy Summer, which is now I hopefully democracy all year long? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're, <laughs> we're really excited about our Democracy Summer program. And my organizing director, Ray, we, we, yeah, we kept her on the campaign intentionally because I said, listen, we're not going to stop the volunteer work. We're not going to stop knocking doors. I mean, we built this whole movement here in Central Florida around getting me elected. And after Election Day, I had people reach me out saying, tell us what's next, what's next, what's next. Most campaigns will say, we'll hit you up launch date in about a year. And we were able to say, give us a month and then we'll tell you what's next. And after that month, we, we were able to get our people engaged. And so We've been doing many different things, whether it's helping with petitioning with other candidates. We're very involved in collecting petitions for the abortion ballot initiative. I'd say that's one of our top things that we've been involved with, making sure people right now we have a special election happening in House District 35, which is a state seat here. We're there every single week 
um, making sure people are registered to vote by mail because now in Florida, that role gets purged every uh, cycle. So there's a lot of work. Yeah. So there's a lot of work to do. In fact, I was knocking doors myself in that neighborhood and I knocked the door of one of a prime voter, right? This person votes. And, uh, and I said, Hey, I wanted to make sure that you're good on your vote by mail. And they said, yeah, I mean, don't worry about me. You know, I've been voting forever. And I said, do you mind if we check just in case they were purged from it? And so we got them re-enrolled and they were so surprised. And so that work is so important. Democracy Summer is actually a national program that Congressman Jamie Raskin started. And so now it's a national program and we took part in it. And what the program does is it encourages members of Congress to hire and give a stipend to fellows. And then the fellows actually spend half of their time on Zoom learning directly from Jamie Raskin and other experts he brings in on what democracy means and how we're going to protect it. And then they spend the other half of their time uh, organizing in the community. And so when when we signed up to do it, you know, they were like, yeah, you can hire one or two people, three or four people, whatever. We hired 10. Um, and so we had 10 young organizers throughout the whole summer, knocking doors, making phone calls, and then learning online from Jamie Raskin and all the experts he's bringing in. And then at the, towards the end of the program, it's my organizing director. And I said, you know, Ray, I, I want to continue hiring fellows year round. Uh, I know it's going to cost me more money out of my campaign and like, I'll do the work and we'll raise it. But this is just really important. And so Democracy Summer is the program for the summer. And then throughout the year, we have our year round organizing fellowship program now where uh, we hire young people. And the hiring is important. We have a great volunteer network. Um, uh, but the difference there is our fellows are, you know, it's more of like a part time job that they're doing. And so being able to pay them um, helps us diversify the pool of people. And it's not it's yeah diversify race, but also diversifying by class. Um, and where people come from. And a lot of folks can't take the take advantage of unpaid internships because they need to make money to pay their bills. Mm -hmm. And so we're a campaign and I'm a member of Congress able to raise that. And so we, we, we were doing that for uh, to be able to pay our fellows, which we do. And we're going to continue that program. It's never going to stop. Those those wheels will always be turning and we want to do even more. Um, and so we're really excited about that program right now. I'm planning a music festival on my campaign side where we want to get young people in and the admission is registering to vote and signing the abortion petition. So yeah, that kind of work also will help the Florida democratic party. That is just the mechanism is weak, but it'll help them create an infrastructure that they can build the party up on, right. To kind of inspire and train a bunch of future politicians and future leaders and future organizers who can really facilitate real change over the time. You know, like I, I, I feel like you've said publicly quite a few times that you can accomplish a lot for your community as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, but there's limitations, right? And so it's not enough just to run for office and focus on yourself and your yeah. own reelection. You have to think about the bigger picture. And I think that this is the kind of thing that that new young politicians can bring to the table. They're saying, we're not going to do it the way we always did it, where I get to Washington and I cut my people off and then I just focus on my own re-election and I make phone calls to big donors. You're saying, no, let's keep people on the ground. Let's keep people going and let's build up that Democratic bench. And speaking of the Democratic bench, before you go, I just love what you're doing. I have to tell you, like, this is exactly how I think politics Thank should you. run. But if we're thinking about long-term thinking... Um, I have to ask you about next year's election, right? I understand it's hard to get young people jazzed up to vote for an 80-year-old, right? But I do feel like 
we have talked about the fact that young people are incredibly passionate about democracy, about having their voices heard and their votes count. They really care about reproductive rights and human rights and their future jobs and lives. They care about the health of the planet they live on. And I feel yep. like these are all very clearly Joe Biden priorities. So with that in mind, what do you think we can do when it comes to getting young voters enthusiastic and ready to support this kind of adorable cutie pie grandpa we have who's also <laughs> just getting an absolute shit ton done for their future yeah well the interesting thing about the youth vote it's very the support is very volatile right it's, it's always moving up and down and, and we have a short attention span and this and that and i always tell people you know a bad poll for the president last week with young voters doesn't mean young voters are not going to turn out vote for him when it comes down to election time um and the fact of the matter is the support for the president from young people has really been going up because they see what he's been doing on climate change etc and here's the thing too and I, I saw this the other day there are organizers who have been you know aggressively pushing the administration on doing even better on climate change being very aggressive about it the president just canceled the leases of 10 different pipeline projects in alaska and then i go on twitter and you see those same organizers saying thank you thank you to the president for listening to us let's continue to do it and that listening to us is such an important part because here's the thing we recognize that when it's going to come down to probably Donald Trump versus Joe Biden, Joe Biden, number one, signed the Inflation Reduction Act, the most money to climate change in the history of our country. We still need a lot more. We do. But he will listen and Donald Trump won't. And when it comes down to organizers, young people, that distinction enough um, is for voting. So it is enough for us to go to the ballot box and vote. The most young people in the history of our country voted in 2020, and they voted for Joe Biden. And I think a lot of it had to do with defending democracy, climate change, getting rid of Trump, but also enthusiasm for the future that we can have. And so um, I think that young people will come out and vote for the president, uh, I, I, but we can't take it for granted, right? The president should continue on this good climate work that he's doing, continue to be upfront about it. The party has to go and reach young people where they're at. And I think if we do the work, not only will we win this election, but we'll see another record turnout uh, for young people. And I intend to be on the road to help make that happen. Me too. Me too. Now, listen, Joe Biden is the only yes. one on the ballot next year. You are also on the ballot and we need you in yes. Congress and more like you in Congress. So what can we help you do to win re-election? What can, how can we help you? Yeah, well, if, if folks if folks want to um, help me out, they can definitely go to my website, frostforcongress.com. And that's a place where people can uh, learn more about how they can help with the campaign and be involved with what we're doing. That's marvelous. I want to thank you for joining me today, Maxwell. We need young people's voices now more than ever. Not everyone gets to be in Congress, but your generation clearly has so much power if you choose to use it. And I just want to inspire you all to be involved. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you so much. Great to meet you. So that was Congressman Maxwell Frost reminding us that you can be both an incrementalist and a progressive that we can learn from the Republicans on how to play the long game in order to get the big changes we want, that we have to connect the dots between politics and policy and elect people who have the courage to make those arguments and take the votes that will get us where we wanna go. We don't stop working just because the election is over. The conversation never stops. I wanna thank Maxwell for joining us today and you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Now go out and talk politics, maybe even with someone young, after all, it's their future we're currently messing with. Until next week, PG out.
The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.